When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to Star Talk. Your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. Welcome to Star Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm an astrophysicist and director of New York City's Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History. The following show features my interview with the actor Hank Azaria. It's possible that many of you may know him better for his voice than for anything else he's done. This one man has provided the voices for a broad range of characters on the animated Fox series The Simpsons. His talent for mimicry and accents has also been central to many of his other roles in movies and television. In the first part of this interview, I establish Hank's geek cred. Of course, we don't only invite geeks to be on Star Talk, but we do love to celebrate them every chance we get. And as you'll hear, Hank Azaria turns out to be a card-carrying member, and his passion for the Star Trek TV series even helped him develop his remarkable voice skills. Do you have what people might call geek credentials? Oh, yes. Give me, give me some. Okay, I'm a Star Trek freak Ooh. to the point where, I mean, I grew up That counts. Watching. That's enough. You could stop there and you're in the club. But but if you got no, more, I have more specifics than that. Uh-huh. Well, first of all, I remember like loving it as a child. As this, are you old enough to have seen the first run? First, no, I you know I, I was born in '64. I think it premiered that's a little in '66. Yeah, that's a little late. But it was already in reruns by the time I was six, seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, especially on WPIX in New York, you yeah. got them all. Yeah. And I remember like loving it as this intense kind of science fiction adventure. Then by the time I was about fifteen realizing that in many ways it was hilarious. Then it became like, you know, by the 19th time I saw certain episodes and certain like Shatner overacting moments. Well, then you reminded why the show got canceled for some of oh, those yeah. episodes, yeah. yeah. Um, and then in college it continued and we actually, those were the early days of computers. The only thing we really used the computer for was to codify all the Star Trek episodes. Really? Yeah, we'd have like the actual title, our title, funny moments we liked, cool things about the... Yeah, that's pretty geeky. That's geeky. Okay. <laughs> so you're born and raised in New York? That's true. Public schools? 
No, I went to. You know, you don't sound like a private school guy. You sound (laughs) like you hung out in the streets. So, well, I grew up in Queens, so you can't avoid the streets. But I went. You know what happened? My my sisters are older than I am, and they went to public schools in Forest Hills. And one day, my sister came home covered in coleslaw. There was a big brawl in the lunchroom. Not a food fight, but a brawl. A brawl that she got in the middle of. She came home hysterical, crying, covered in coleslaw. <laughs> and my parents were like, that's it. That's it for public schools. No Queens. public school for you. So I went to Montessori schools Ooh. as a little guy. Oh, okay. And then I went to a prep school in Queens called Kew Forest for grade 7 through 12. So are there any memorable teachers there? Oh, I had some great teachers. I, I, I do a poll and I say, how many great teachers can you list in your life? And nobody has more than two or three, at most four. Yeah. And typically, if one of those great teachers was a science teacher, then they become a scientist. That's I found that interesting. Yeah, see, I don't think I had a great <laughs> science teacher. I loved science. as I did. I had some pretty good ones. Mm-hmm. I had an amazing English teacher in high school, a great history teacher in high school. Um, I remember in Montessori, I had one or two particularly gifted teachers that I remember very fondly. In college, I had an incredible European literature teacher. Listen to you. European literature. Excuse me. A guy named Saul Gittleman at Tufts University taught European literature and Yiddish literature. And they were amazing classes. People would take them just to hear him talk. I thought Yiddish was more spoken than written. I guess not. It's guys like Shalom Aleichem who wrote the Tevye stories originally that uh-huh. became the Fiddler, Fiddler on the Roof. roof. Mm-hmm. And Sholem Ash. And then into the modern tradition of like Bernard Malamud and Philip Roth. So you read Yiddish? No. I read all the translated stuff. Translated, okay. I can't speak. I can't read it. Do you know any other languages? I don't. I, so you're just American? I'm a Sephardic Jew, which is a Spanish Jew. My parents are both fluent in Spanish. And for about a minute in high school, when we went to Spain for a month, I was fluent, but when I came back, and it's all gone. I can do accents, but I'm not so good with language. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, because if you're good with voices, maybe having known multiple languages works the tongue and the lips, but... You got there from a whole other way. Apparently. I can sound like I know the language, but I don't really know. My wife is linguistically very gifted. Okay. She speaks Italian fluently, and she can pick up a language really fast. Polyglot, I guess, when they call I, those I, folks. Yeah. If you want to be all technical about it. <laughs> Let me ask you. Most people, I think, when they think of acting in life, they don't necessarily think of being a voice actor. right? Did that? What came first for you? First for me came acting. I don't know many people who set out to be a voice actor only. And you went to Tufts? I did. Did you major in acting there? Yes, I majored in drama there, and there certainly was no voiceover there. We did plays. College theater is a lot of classics and experimental stuff Mm -hmm. that's very difficult to sit through. Mm. So they're really training ground for you, and it's painful for the audience. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, with Mm -hmm. rare exception. Mm -hmm. Well, you got people of varying talents, you know, and learning, and usually it's a very academic approach. Like, there's some very intellectual concept behind the production that may not translate so much into actual enjoyable visceral theater. So did your teacher say, that guy Hank, he'll go far. I certainly got a lot of the roles. Mm-hmm. I was there at a great time. I mean, Oliver Platt, you know that actor? Yeah. yeah. We both went to Tufts together uh-huh. and did a lot of theater together there. Mm-hmm. He was great. I had a lot to learn then. I was very raw. He was like, as good as he is now, he was that good then. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot from him. I found him very inspiring back then. So when did your voice become an actor? I was always a mimic. 
growing up, you know, as long as I can remember. So you could imitate people yeah. off the bat. Captain Kirk, for example. Mm-hmm, you know. mm-hmm. uh, but while you were watching it in reruns that early, were you imitating him at the time? Yes. I was trying to. I was always trying to record. Because I, you wanted to sort of have playful mockery of it or because you wanted to be Captain Kirk? Both. Really? Absolutely both. When you find that you can sort of actually really sound like your heroes, you, I can actually get Captain Kirk's rhythm. <laughs> you feel great so, about it. I guess, right, because we all have heroes, but we have no access to their talents. Yes. So you had extra psychic value to your imitations. Well, I would hear myself being able to do it, and I would delight myself with it. Like, how that actually sounded like. You know, or, I mean, Rocky came out when I was like nine, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to really sound like that. You know, hey, yo, well, I'm standing here. I was like, wow, I can, I can make that noise. That's awesome. But I didn't... What? <laughs> oh, so Sylvester Stone's voice is a noise. <laughs> well, you know, it's. I always say that now. Because I've been doing it for so long, and it's a career, it feels to me just like noises I'm making. <laughs> so whatever you hear, you can just create it on the spot, essentially. I found as a kid that I could pretty much instantly mimic something. Uh-huh. And then I found later on is there were certain impressions that I couldn't get but if I would work on them for a week or two and I would get them mm-hmm. like you know <clears throat> Woody Allen for example <clears throat> you know somebody that I you know, I worked on I couldn't you know, get it right away but I he was a hero <clears throat> you know a hero of mine so I, I tried Johnny Carson is another one <clears throat> that I couldn't do right away but I I worked on it and it it came because it was important to me. I loved these guys so much, I really wanted to get the impression. Okay, now you got to do Carl Sagan, now that you're sitting here. You know, I never really worked up a... Don't tell me that! I, you're here on Star Talk! Billions and billions of... What was it? Stars? <laughs> <laughs> a journey through... That's how I remember it, anyway. Very deliberate, measured, kind of... Wrapped himself around the words... I'd need a few minutes to actually hear him to get it right, but it was sort of like that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. He was into the syllables of the words he right. pronounced. Since we're talking scientifically, mm-hmm. this is what I wonder. You know what goes along with being able to mimic? And I only realized this like in the last decade or so. As more and more celebrities do voiceovers, but you don't know it's them while we'll doing a car commercial, I can instantly pick out a voice. I'll say, okay, that's Kiefer Sutherland, or that's Scott Glenn, or that's Jeff Bridges. And I think it must be connected to the ability to mimic somehow. Voices that most people, you would say, yeah, it sounds familiar, but I don't know who that is. Mm -hmm. And also, if I've heard somebody once, I'll remember what their voice sounds like Mm -hmm. a long time afterwards. All right, so now the radio audience wouldn't know this, but when you were imitating... Woody Allen, you were going through the body gestures of it. <laughs> yeah. So I was surprised when you see the behind-the-scenes voiceovering of these animated features. You see the actors gesturing behind the microphone. I'm saying, nobody's looking at that. So I wonder, how important is your body when you're only doing voiceover? You're as fully engaged as when you're acting. You have to be. You I do. Guess. You have to put your whole body into it. That's what's so tiring about it. Look, it is easier than showing up on a set and getting into hair and makeup and wardrobe and 
shooting a 16-hour shoot day just to get two pages worth of dialogue on mm -hmm. film, which is what you do in a movie or a TV show. It's easier than that, but it's so concentrated. I can only do about three, four hours of voiceover recording before I collapse because your whole <laughs> body is in your it. Your whole body, mind, and soul. You have to gesture and mm -hmm. pretend you're really acting that out in order to make it sound real. Like if you're supposed to be sounding like you're lifting a heavy object, you have to kind of go, all right, let's get that up there, you know? Mm. Or if you're supposed to sound like you're running, the easiest thing to do is just jog in place and say the lines. So I presume it's hard to imitate someone who doesn't have obvious, unusual vocal intonations. Yeah. So imitation is like an illustrator trying to draw a caricature of something. Right. They're going to find your nose or your eyebrows or something that they have to exaggerate. Right. So is it really true you can't imitate someone who's got nothing interesting in their voice? I mean, I guess you can, but it's very, very difficult. In the same way that, like, it's easier to do a very pronounced British accent, you know, a Cockney accent, than it is to do a subtle one. It's much harder. You know, and even that is probably too much. It's really difficult to do a subtle accent. It's very hard to do somebody who's got a subtle vocal quality. I can do a broad stroke impression immediately to get something really good. Like I've had to do accents. My French accent wasn't very good when I first. A role in a long poly where I played the played the French guy, and they had to uh, to work at it. At first, I couldn't um, do it too too well. But I, I worked on it, and uh, it, it came out all right. Oui, oui. <laughs> so at what point do they choose you to do a French accent or just get some French actor? Well, I'm, that's kind of my gig now in Hollywood. I'm known as the accent guy. So really? people think of me for that. Yeah. So they'll go to you before they'll get draw Depardieu or Not something. necessarily, no. I mean, if they want the real deal, they'll do that. Especially for comedy. Mm -hmm. Naked foreigners, for some reason. Somebody's not wearing too much and speaks in an that's accent. A, that's a category yeah, of illustrated Yeah, it's a small character. niche, but it seems to be my niche. Do you prefer inventing characters out of whole cloth, or do you rather base them on people and life experiences that you've had? You know, for me, there's no difference. I'm always sort of starting with what feels like a, a mimicry, an impression to me, even if it starts to get really far afield from what that person's actually like. It kind of starts with, you know, like when I, I did this, I did this role in the Birdcage. I played a very flamboyantly gay character, a Latin, a Guatemalan, and I worked on a Guatemalan accent pretty hard. And he talked like this. He was wait, very, so Birdcage was La Caja Fall, wasn't La Caja Fall. Yeah, 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 yeah. The American version was the Birdcage <laughs> with Ramon. So you were in that movie. I was. I got to go back now because I wouldn't know I what you look like. I played the houseboy. He's mm -hmm. very sweet guy. Talks like this, and a Latin guy. And he's, you know, very mothering and sweet to everybody. And I realized a couple of weeks into shooting that I sound exactly like my grandmother. <laughs> I sounded almost exactly like... Oh, because you're Spanish. Yeah, my, she heritage. was a very sweet Spanish lady. Mm -hmm. And she was very loving and nurturing and, oh, baby, I love you. And having that image of her in my mind, it helped me be feminine and maternal. It would have saved me a lot of time building that character. Forgive me, I did not see the sequel to Night at the Museum, which was the Smithsonian. Yes. The original was took place here. Here. Yeah. here. Yes. We are interviewing you in my office at the Hayden Planetarium of the American Museum of Natural History. Mm -hmm. So what so what character were you? Forgive me for not knowing. You I were played in uh, Kamun Ra, a, an Egyptian pharaoh who came back to life. And I used the voice of Boris Karloff. <laughs> 
as an inspiration. And when I say inspiration, I mean I ripped it off. Because uh, that's what Pharaoh spoke like. We're, well, we're, we're sure. You know, we were playing around. You're talking about, I mean, we were playing around with, like, what should he sound like? What the like? hell should he sound like? And I first had this sort of just upper crust English accent I was using. We did the table read, and the head of stu the studio, actually, sometimes they have good ideas. He said, you know, can't the voice be a little sillier? And we were like, all right. So I went for a wardrobe and makeup test, and which usually doesn't involve sound. They just want to see what you look like. But we threw a mic on there, and I just threw out a bunch of voices. And as a joke, because Boris Karloff was the original mummy, um. I said, what about, you know, Boris Karloff was a mummy? Maybe this would be good. With a lift, and I was yeah. Well, he kind he didn't really lift. He a little bit lift, but a I mummy with a lisp. I exaggerated it, and it, and and it just made everybody laugh. They're like, "That's the one." I'm like, "Really? That's out there." But okay, let's give it a whirl. But actually, it worked because Boris Karloff could be. He was a great actor. Actually, he could be really menacing. Mm -hmm. He was the villain in that, so it worked pretty well. Well, if you know this, we to this day have. Uh, this sounds like a cheap ad, but we we have night at the museum for ki for parents and kids. So oh, you do. It, so it, you spend the night in the Hall of Ocean Life, and but before then they turn out the lights in the dinosaur hall. Oh really? And you go with a flashlight and you go fossil oh. hunting. How how with your old kids. Uh, the kids? I think they're, I mean. they're targeting. Would freak my son out a little. Like fifth through eighth grade All kind right. of thing. Oh, we'll and I just learned because I don't run these things. They now have night at the museum for grown-ups. Oh really? You can't be younger than twenty-one. I can go in character and freak people out. <laughs> You're dressed as an Egyptian pharaoh. I am Karmun Ra. I am half god. Once removed on my mother's side. Rightful ruler of Egypt, future ruler of, well, everything else. Now, I have lost some men. So, I am in need of some new generals to join me in my little plan of conquering this world. Ivan the Terrible. Napoleon Bonaparte. And young Al Capone. Some of the most despicable, the most feared leaders in all of history. Gentlemen. It's just, just fantastic to meet you all. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. 
Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Hey, remember when we did that show about the science of the golf swing? Well, let's take that to the next level. And that's because PXG has developed the Black Ops Driver so golfers don't have to sacrifice distance for forgiveness. And the science proves it. PXG Black Ops Driver is a breakthrough in driver technology. It's a complete and total victory in golf club engineering, unlike anything you've ever seen before. Black Ops Drivers are adjustable to deliver a combined MOI of 10,000 plus for unreal forgiveness. Now that's ridiculously high. The higher the MOI, the more forgiving the club will play. So you don't have to square the ball perfectly for it to go straight and get distance. Add PXG's new advanced material face technology and you get incredible ball speed that pushes the distance to the absolute limits. More forgiveness, more distance, no sacrifices. PXG Black Ops Driver. Hit your tee shot straighter and farther. The proof is in the science. Learn more and get free shipping on all equipment. Go to pxg.com slash startalk and use code startalk at checkout. That's pxg.com slash startalk. Use code startalk for free shipping on all equipment. PXG.com slash StarTalk, code StarTalk. A black hole? I'm sorry, can we call it that? Yes, it's the preferred term, and most scientists believe that what enters a black hole never comes out. But some think they may be a gateway to other universes. Hey, can it open a pencil bag for me? Help a brother out, BH. Woohoo! Ow! Guys, stop throwing things in the hole. The more you throw in, the bigger and more dangerous it becomes. Come on, you can't look at that infinitely dense little guy and not want to feed it something. Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. For this show, we're featuring my interview with the actor Hank Azaria. In this segment, we start off by discussing The Simpsons. His work on this long-running animated series has earned him three Academy Awards. This hugely popular show is not only a platform for his amazing voice talent, but the show often plays with science topics and concepts. How many voices are you in The Simpsons? I'm 20 or 30 regular running characters. What? <laughs> 20 to 30? Yeah, of guys you'll pretty much see. And they're delineated and you can nail them each time. Del of course, yeah, those definitely. Since I created those, those are those are easy. You got them. 
Yeah, those are simple. And this, you haven't been investigated for schizophrenia or anything? <laughs> is there some word that psychologists have for you? As much as I often joke like, oh, there's a lot of voices in my head or different personalities, that's never an issue. Besides the voice thing, I do consider myself a character actor and, and I consider it a compliment. People have said I tend to disappear in roles and this and that, mm-hmm. vocally and otherwise. And I think that is true psychologically of me. Like, I tend to get very into whatever it is I'm doing to an extent where I'm almost like, am I the same person that I was three months ago before I was doing this? That's happened to me sometimes, but I've never... But that's a good thing for an actor. I suppose so, but sometimes the line gets a little blurred in not such a good way. I'm like, huh. I can remember being a teenager when you don't have these things sorted out, and I fit in with so many different peer groups... I could hang with the tough kids because I could kind of talk like, yeah, yeah. yo, what's up, dude? That's why I didn't have you in a prep school growing up. That's why. Yes, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. then with the nerdy kids, I'd be happy to talk Star Trek, and mm-hmm. that accent was gone. And then as a teenager, you sort of wonder who you really are, almost to like a, a, a weird degree. Then you kind of realize, oh, I can just kind of be a bit of a chameleon. And I found a way to do that professionally, which was a nice outlet for it. But I never like get weird like... Am I, am I Chief Wiggum? I never, like, think I'm Chief Wiggum or something. I never, like, wig out like That's that. what I'm trying to investigate here. That's the whole point of this interview. No, that's never happened. I've been paid by the American Psychological <laughs> Society to Sometimes probe. I feel close to Mo. Sometimes I do. Because he's, I feel he's from Queens. He's got a New York accent. And I used to bartend. I used to bartend. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if I didn't get The Simpsons, I'd probably still be a bartender. <laughs> okay. So, were you there from the beginning? From the beginning of the half-hour version. Oh, so it started as a 15-minute uh, As a little insert. tiny, like, minute or two. Oh, it was only a couple of minutes? Yeah. And what, the Tracy Ullman show? Exactly. Right, right. Yeah. So how quickly after that? It goes a half-hour, and then they find you. Actually, they had hired somebody else to do the voice of Mo, and I thought for years they weren't happy with his work. But I found out not long ago from Matt Groening that his work was fine. He was an abrasive personality. They just didn't like him. Poor guy. I mean, he made a... I, I owe him a debt of gratitude, but they just didn't like him. They were very meticulous in the first few years, of it, but we'd have to do a lot of takes. And I guess he got frustrated, and I guess he was the voice of G.I. Joe. And he went, you know, I, when I do G.I. Joe, we never do this many. Oh, there it is. Yeah, like, yeah and, yeah, and yeah. so it was like, okay, well, we'll see you, G.I. Yeah. Joe. <laughs> Keep being G.I. Joe. <laughs> so I have to ask you a crass question. Yeah. If you're 20 to 30 characters on The Simpsons, do you get like 20 to 30 separate character paychecks for that? No, I wish. I am not paid like by the yard. That's no. what I was wondering. Yeah, yeah. No, they get the whole thing. They get it's my time. They're paid for my time. I'm paid for my time. So it's a package. It's you. Yeah. Give me this voice in this minute, the other voice the next minute. There are some epi- I don't think there's ever been an episode where I've done less than like five, mm-hmm. and there's some I've done like 30 or something. Okay. And I've done, by the way, more voices than that. There's just 20 or 30 ones that appear very regularly over the 25 years. I've who's, probably- the, who's the convenience store guy? Is that you? That's Apu. That Apu. is me, yes. yes. Apu no, Nasapima Petalan is his name. <laughs> and he is a proud Indian, and he works, t- this is a little known fact, he works 24 hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> Very difficult schedule. It's a 24-hour convenience store. He is there 24 hours a day. And he works 24 hours a day. And he has eight children now. So it's very difficult for him. (laughs) Uh, So when you're in the sound studio, what kind of stuff do they make you do? In other words, when we think of actors getting into character, that takes a little 
psychological right. effort, and they get into character, and then you can draw from it. But you're so many characters. Do you ever have to go back and forth from one to another? You mean like talking to each other? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the time. That's got to be hard. It was a little hard at the first couple of years. I've mm-hmm. had a lot of practice at this now. Um, but now it, it really, especially with characters you're so familiar with, you know, for Apu to talk to Mo, hey, shut up, Apu. Why don't you be quiet yourself? Because I don't feel like being quiet. Hey, somebody is a little bit feisty today. Oh, feisty. That's a, what is that? An American word you learned? <laughs> for me, you know, once I have the voice, the whole like character falls in. So I don't know why. Intonations and words. I'd be interested to hear what, what a scientist. Like, police chief Wiggum talks like this, and you notice I have to put him out the side of my mouth. I don't know why. And he's really dumb, police chief Wiggum. And somehow, if I talk like this, I just feel a lot stupider than I am. So what you're saying is, so you, the voice creates the psychological state of the character. For me, it does. The whole body and psyche will follow if I click into a Because it's not not going to work if words get swapped that would be more common with one character than another or phrasings or anything. So Yes. Yeah. Otherwise, you'd fail at your job. Exactly. So, and I don't know, it's just for me, once, it's like a shortcut with acting, like, because actors will sort of build characters from the ground up. How does he walk? What was his history like? What traumatized him? What does he really want? If I can find the voice that works, like a lot of that will just get filled in all of a sudden. Because when you were imitating Woody Allen, you got that meek posturing and there. You have to, you know, <clears throat> yes. You have to clear your throat a lot too. <clears throat> because, you know, he, you know what he does. <laughs> um, the Simpsons is legendary for many reasons including the frequent reference to science and math. Yeah. And, and maybe frequent is not the right word. When there are such references, they are real and meaningful. Yeah. Who, who is that primarily? Who's putting that in there? There's been a few guys over the years, but you know, most of these guys, or a lot of them, many of them have been there from the beginning. They're Harvard guys, and they're really, really smart. And to a lot of these guys, I, yeah, who is it specifically? I know that uh, I'm pretty sure George Meyer used to put in a few of those. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure who on the current staff we really can, we have to thank. One of my favorite episodes where, was it The Simpsons in 3D or something? Yes. And there's a grid that opens up in the, and it's one of these black hole. Mm-hmm. The black hole starts forming in the grid and, and Homer is sliding down and he says, oh, I knew I should have read that book by that wheelchair guy because <laughs> he doesn't know what's going on. Oh, wow. And there's a, there's, a, there's a street sign that has Euler's equation on it, which is a profound, almost spiritual expression of mathematics. It's right. E to the power I pi equals negative one. That was on a street sign. You don't just pull that out of your ass. No. Somebody... Did some homework for that episode. Well, Al Jean, who's been running the show for years, I'm sure he's had a lot to do with many of these. And it, he's an interesting guy because more than anybody I've ever met, any uh, more than any other comedy writer I've ever met, uh, comedy is like math to him. It's this like the script becomes this equation that he's figured out that pays off in the right places and sort of works as it is on paper. As a result, sometimes it's a little bit frustrating for us voice actors who want to deviate from that a little bit like we'll improvise something and it'll like 
snap him out as if you've changed the line of the equation. You can't mess with the equation. Exactly. Mm. And so he'll have to sort of wrap his brain around it. You know, I never thought of it that way, because what is a joke but an equation with an equal sign at the end? Pretty much. It certainly is to Al, you know. Mm-hmm. And oh, he's almost an a savant like that with, mm-hmm. with the comedy. He, but otherwise, how much latitude do you have if you say, well, my character wouldn't say it that way, he'd say it this other way? Do they give you that space? I mean, you're, you're an old-timer now, for, you know. You know they got to give you some space. Yes, but I always try to give them a couple exactly as written, and then I do a couple where I play around and a little bit. And then they can decide. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, they let them decide in mm-hmm. editing. Mm-hmm. But it's up to, it's kind of dealer's choice. Different showrunners... Some of them really embrace all the different stuff, and people. Al is more like, no, this is how I worked it out. So as long as it's good, I don't. By the way, did I ever tell you the story of you know when? Um, it's only the second time we've met, so the answer is probably no. I might have told you it at the airport when I saw you about. Uh, I think I might did, but I'll tell again here. So we met at the airport. This was our third time together. We uh, met on the street. Yes. And I you, was my own business. You, come, you, you kicked, did my show. A, you stuck a camera in my face. Okay. <laughs> um, What's it like being a dad? I'm like, what? <laughs> you gave us such great stuff. Did you see any of those? I did. No, it was great. It was great. You gave us such edited. great Thanks. stuff. Uh-huh. I told you about how, when Stephen Hawking visited us. I told you about this, didn't I? No, no. I guess he was a fan of the show. Mm-hmm. And he was going to come to our table read. And we were all Just so very, I know what that is. Uh, that's is, when we read the script for the first time. And around you, you table. feel it and shake it out. Mostly it's for the writers. They hear it and they'll do their rewrite based on how it just sounded. Mm-hmm. We do that on a Thursday and we record the show on a Monday. They'll rewrite on Friday and then we'll... Mm-hmm. So they're tradition. We've been doing them for a long time now. We usually get about 50 to 100 people watching them because it's kind of an event. It's fun. So Stephen Hawking was coming. So we're all very, very excited by this. And he's late. 10 minutes late, 20 minutes late. He's not late. Time has just well, not... Well, here's, here's why... <laughs> he's on time. The rest of the universe that's was where, early. That's where I'm headed here. <laughs> okay. So he's significantly late. And there's this Hollywood thing where when important people are late uh, in Hollywood, first you don't mention it. And then after about 20 minutes in hushed tones, the uh, like, well, what do you want? Should we start? What should happen? So that debate kind of starts and we're like, well, do we start? Do we just go? I mean... And it's kind of going back and forth. And Harry Shearer is reading his newspaper. And without looking up from his newspaper, he just chimes in. Does the man have no concept of time? (laughs) (laughs) That is great. It's a good one. I think it might be the funniest line I've ever heard anybody say. Ever. About anything. Yeah. Ever. Does the man have no concept of time? <laughs> but he he appeared in the show, mm-hmm. Stephen Hawking. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think maybe just one episode. You, yeah. So uh, the list of scientists, which apparently doesn't include me, <laughs> really, I can't believe we haven't. I, I don't want to sound jealous wow. or anything. That's amazing. But I just thought I'd let someone on the cast know. I but, will. I'll put in a word. No, that's I fine. No, it's too no, late. Too late. <laughs> that's not too late. Okay. It's hardly too late. Uh, you only think of me now that I've done Cosmos, okay? What kind of bard I needed to get noticed <laughs> by you guys. So you've had uh, Stephen Jay Gould. Yeah. He was in an episode. I think it adds a certain fun credibility. There's a lot of really uh, mathematical and science Easter eggs, I guess, as they call mm-hmm. them, as they, they put in the show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was even a, there was an interesting article about that recently, about how there's a lot for math geeks to hang on to. Yeah, sure. also, I remember an episode where... Uh, was it uh, Homer discovers a comet? I might have the details wrong, and it's named after him. But then they find out that the comet is headed towards Earth, and so then they blame him. <laughs> I don't even remember this. And the, one. And the, it's one of these mob scenes with torches, okay. and and they burn down the observatory. And it's a, what a, what a statement of people's sense of the cause and effect of things. 
Yeah, the whole mob mentality theme is a big one in The Simpsons. Mm -hmm. Just how the psychology of mobs and how they can turn yeah. and how easily influenced they are. Mm -hmm. That's one of the, uh, their really good social satire things that they do. So uh, you were in a show called Huff. Yes. And you played a psychiatrist. That's right. Okay. That was about eight, nine years ago. Uh-huh. How did that go? That was great. Mm -hmm. I, I loved that show. It was hard to do because it was about a lot of difficult emotional things. Because mm -hmm. what I always wonder, you have an ensemble of actors, and many of them are playing, let's just call them for the moment, regular people. Yeah. You know, husband, wife. And then there's some actor that has to now play a learned person in the right. midst of that group. Right. And they go to that they go to that learned person to get something explained. That had, it's a different role in a group of actors, right? It is, and it was often a little more boring. Yeah, um, because you don't get to emote like everybody no, else does. No, I would be sort of, you know, I'd spent, I, we would see a lot of his uh, sessions as a psychiatrist, and mm -hmm. I'd be sitting there going, my lines would be, mm-hmm. Really? <laughs> well, why did you feel that way? While people were doing these astonishing <laughs> monologues, these emotional monologues, <laughs> and we're like, uh-huh, okay. okay. Well, we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a lot of the show was about how that show was a lot about really about addiction actually mm -hmm. everybody in that show was addicted to something mm -hmm. even though it didn't purport to be that that's really what it was about and it was definitely about how a guy who could have know what was good for everybody else and fix their lives had no clue when it came to his own life. Yeah, and that's family. that's a common fact. Absolutely. From what I read. Yeah, had a big blind spot for his own codependencies and addictions and whatnot. So you were in Futurama. I would play Zoidberg's uncle. The voice was kind of like this, and it was like an old Jewish comedian, which was sort of based on Georgie Jessel. Remember Georgie Jessel? No. Yeah, he's. Uh, why would you know him? <laughs> but he was a comedian from like the fifties, sixties. Who talked like this, Georgie Jessel? <laughs> You're in a series of animated shows that have huge geek following. Yeah. So you must be sort of a demigod at Comic Con. You know, I've never gone, and I'm dying to go. And I'm a big comic book geek and sci-fi. You've geek. never been to Comic Con. Never been. I'm dying. And now to go. we they opened one up in New York. Yeah. I, you know, I would venture to say that I will definitely go to that. Yeah, because as you know, the geek following is probably the most loyal. Oh following. yeah. And they'll hold you to stuff. Well, they're mean? not just blindly loyal fans. If you're not true to a character or you step out of it in a well, way, they'll be on your Well, case. that's like comic book guy. The role I play on The Simpsons, he will often bust people on, excuse me, in episode 8F09, <laughs> you had a white dog, and yet in episode 4F12, the dog was tan. How do you explain this discrepancy? <laughs> that's comic book guy. <laughs> And they'll exist, you know. <laughs> so in your Comic-Con universe geek credentials, you also voiced something in Spider-Man? What was that? I was Eddie Brock who talked like, he was another New Yorker. Eddie Brock kind of talked like this. And then Venom. He became Venom. Who was he a nemesis of Spider-Man? Venom, yeah. He's a pretty cool nemesis. Remember when Spider-Man got that black suit for a while? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually an alien symbiote. He just found the suit and it enhanced his powers. But he found that he was losing control of himself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the alien was kind of taking over mm -hmm. and making him do bad things. And, it, and he couldn't get rid of it. Like, it wouldn't leave him. And he got it off him by sort of somehow it glommed on to Eddie Brock. And it kind of combined with who you really were. So when he was Spider-Man, Peter Parker was a good guy. 
that he was only kind of... It added aspects of his yes, pro- it, it, personality it, profile. It, it was making Peter Parker do stuff he didn't like, but it wasn't horrible. But Eddie Brock was kind of a bad dude. To begin and, with. Yes. And he also had not a very strong will, so the alien completely took him over and was this awful character named Venom. And that was you. That was me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in your resume, is it like, is it sectioned by awful, reprehensible characters, <laughs> lovable characters? <laughs> what does your resume look like? a wide range. <laughs> it's upon request. Your theory of a donut-shaped universe is intriguing, Homer. I may have to steal it. Wow, I can't believe someone I never heard of is hanging out with a guy like me. All right, it's closing time. Who's paying the tab? I am. I didn't say that. Yes, I did. Dope. Do you want to set up your child for success? Of course you do. Maybe you want to save money on private tutoring, or maybe it's just out of your budget altogether. Is this a big school year for your child? Like maybe they're starting kindergarten, middle school, or high school, or some other milestone. Maybe your family moved and they're starting at a new school. Is your child ahead? Not getting challenged enough in class? Well, we love that little smarty, but we want them to be engaged. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or the personality. There's one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids can use it at home on the computer or on the go through the app on your phone or your tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything itself. And no more trying to figure out how to explain math equations or grammar rules yourself. IXL has built-in explanation videos. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Star Talk Radio listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Star Talk. Visit IXL.com slash Star Talk to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
nice, but I, I, I have to go. I, I, I can't miss my flight. Are you sure? I'll bet there's another flight to Minsk in like... July. Pochalusta, pochisti, moi mernich, stoka. It's really beautiful. What does it mean? Please clean my beakers. I don't get out of the lab much. Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. We've been featuring my interview with the actor Hank Azaria. In this final segment, we have a free-ranging discussion about his roles in the movie Godzilla, the TV show Friends, and his new animated series on Fox. We also bring it back to Star Trek to answer the age-old geek question, Kirk or Picard? Forgive me, I was never a fan of the show Friends. Okay, I forgive you. It wasn't popular up in, in the hood, you know. <laughs> okay. It wasn't one of those kind of shows. <laughs> I can understand that. <laughs> but uh, you were a recurring character. I was. And you played a scientist. I did. Yeah. David the Scientist Guy. That's what they called him. <laughs> that doesn't have the same ring as Bill Nye the Science Guy. <laughs> no, no. That's like a good. lame imitation of that, <laughs> right? So what, did you have to do any homework for that? To I did not. <laughs> I, I, I applaud your honesty I, in front of this audience. It was never requ- I was required to be funny and mm-hmm. be believably geeky. Uh huh. And that's about as far as the science went. And you had enough natural geek in you to uh, very to play easy. That. I put on glasses. Yeah, you know, yeah, that yeah. Was, that was a little studious a, look. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know if I'm alone in saying that in the 1998 Godzilla, I really liked your role because it felt like you were just trying to get the shot you know and you were the cameraman the yeah news cameraman yes that was a tough movie on a lot of levels it didn't come out as well as we wanted it to mm-hmm. uh, it didn't do as well as we wanted it to it became the symbol of like what was wrong with hollywood at that moment <laughs> these kind of overblown budgets mm-hmm. that didn't deliver and were just kind of rehashing stuff that had already been done in a way not as well it was tough for me because I thought that, you know, these guys had just done Independence Day, which was a huge, huge success. And we were all in that cast hoping for the same kind of success. And mm-hmm. it actually had kind of more of a negative impact. But yes, well, I, got, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I'm glad you yeah, liked it. Yeah, yeah. I heard the, the newer one was better. Which I, heard, I haven't seen that yet. I, I haven't seen it either with Brian mm-hmm. Cranston. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that said, the other thing about that was we shot that for about five months and uh, Roland Emmerich directed it, and he's a German guy, and he came to me one day, and he said, so we got a great idea, we're going to do everything in the rain. Always going to be raining. The creature is going to look better in the rain. It's going to be beautiful. I'm like, great. And I, Now I, that you mention it, right? I don't remember seeing the, rain. the sun at all. Pouring. The, the problem with that Dark is, and dank. I told that at the time I was, I wasn't married to her yet, but I was going out with uh, Helen Hunt, who was a pro, had, had, had done everything under the sun as an actress already. And I told her that, and she was like... Oh, can I boast? What? She came to this office. Oh, yeah? And sat in that chair. Oh, yeah? And Did she do the I show? I coached her, no, oh. uh, before Star Talk, longer, in the oh, okay. early 90s, and uh, uh, late 90s. And I coached her on how to be the wife of an astrophysicist in a play that she was starring in in Broadway. Oh. It was called I, Lifetimes 3. Yes. And it had John Turturro in it. Yes. And Data was in it. Oh, uh, Brent Spiner. Uh, Brent Spiner. He's in this season of Ray Donovan. He plays a shrink, actually. Oh, okay. All right. This season of Ray but I had all three of them in this office, and I'm telling them about how to be an astrophysicist. That, that was just fun. Was that just, is fun. That was a little, char- a little charming moment. Okay, <laughs> but go on. So you were dating her. 
we were dating at the time and I told her that it's going to be all in the rain and she was like oh no that's terrible I'm like it won't be so bad she's like okay I hope not <laughs> and she's thinking every, you idiot <laughs> well every exterior pouring down and Hollywood rain is it's like a deluge so the camera will see it it was so miserable we all got sick like multiple times we had to wear wetsuits you know that's an interesting point because in a baseball game when it starts to rain the camera doesn't pick up the rain often doesn't yeah it has to be lit correct it's got to lit in the right way from yeah. behind it's got a glow it's got to be pretty thick yeah yeah, yeah. i didn't thought that through yeah so you had a wetsuit under your clothing that would be soaked through the wetsuit would be soaked through by lunchtime you had to change wetsuits okay and the hardest part was and then Helen Hunt broke up with you because you were an idiot well not long after that <laughs> I got soggy she was like enough with you oh it was terrible three weeks of night shooting in the rain in downtown LA and we'd be suffering through this going okay it's going to be worth it but when it comes out and it wasn't mm. <laughs> well my favorite rain line I don't remember if you were in the car but they're trying to drive uptown. Yeah. And they get on the on-ramp to the FDR drive. And they say, let's take the FDR drive. And meanwhile, Godzilla is bearing down on the city. <laughs> and she says, everyone knows you're not supposed to drive on the FDR in the rain. <laughs> it, was, it had its moments. <laughs> yeah, it was like, that was a very New York urban joke. Yes. It's, it's, you don't drive on the FDR when it's raining. Because there's no shoulder. It's slippery. Right. One accident takes out that stuff forever. So... But back to Star Trek briefly. So I've, I've got to ask you, Kirk or Picard? Oh boy, you know, I would have always said Kirk, and then about nine, ten years ago, I binge-watched all of Next Generation and really loved it, and now it's it's a tough call for me. I think I have to go Kirk. Push comes to shove, i got to go Kirk. I'm Kirk, too. Not that I don't love me some Picard. Yeah, he's Who doesn't great. love Picard? But Kirk had a certain seat-of-the-pants yeah. I mean, Picard doesn't making. fight. <laughs> I mean... Well, was he never in a fight? I don't think ever. Oh, my gosh. I think one time that he ever sock an alien in the jaw. Kirk I mean. was... Kirk fought the Gorn. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can fight lizard... Yeah. Lizard aliens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I used to love the Gorn. Ben Stiller's a buddy of mine. He uh, is the proud owner of the Gorn head. No. The actual Gorn So the head, head is out there. Oh, yeah. Ben dragged me once to, like... Uh, auction of all these yeah, crazy yeah. things he's a huge star trek fan and collector wait a minute that wouldn't have been the christie's auction but about 10 years ago it was. seven years ago, i was at that auction oh you were there i didn't buy anything that was expensive it was they had the foam phaser <laughs> that would be on the hip of the stunt people so that when they fell mm. they wouldn't be impaled by the real phaser right that went for 150 dollars yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, no, I can't. I, you know, I'm done here. I'm, I'll just watch. I don't know what he paid for the Gorn head, but I think it was a lot. <laughs> that's, of a, that's a great sentence. <laughs> what did the Gorn head go for? <laughs> so you said you'd take Kirk over at Picard? I would. You know why I take Kirk over Picard? Why? One reason. Why? One reason. <laughs> there was an episode, forgive me for not remembering the name of the episode. I bet I know it. Where... He is threatening some Klingon vessel, and their deflector shields are damaged. Right. The Enterprise, and their, their photon torpedo can't shoot. There's something wrong, and they actually can't defend themselves. Right. And so Kirk tells them, if you don't back the hell up, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but if you don't get out, we will 
do something, okay? And we will knock you out of the water. And I get all the details wrong, but the sense of this is accurate. I know all the and, details. And, and <laughs> Spock says, Captain, this is no time for a game of chess. And he says, Spock, it's not chess. It's poker. It's poker. And I said, holy, that, that's, that's my man right there. That Making executive decision. Is called the Corbomite Maneuver. And that's the device that he claims to have on board is Corbomite, which is a self-destruct mechanism that would take out space all around the Enterprise, including the ship that was threatening them. The Corbomite Maneuver <laughs> is the title of that episode. Thank you. <laughs> and since there was no such thing as a Corbinite, no. he just made it up. Totally made it up. It's a bluff. And the other folks don't know it. Right. And Spock doesn't know anything about bluffing. Right. And so I thought that was just a brilliant move. That's well, that's great. I, I want to be I want to be Kurt. I remember great ep uh they at one point the aliens it wasn't the Klingons, I think it was Romulans? It might have no, it was or just like some a one time alien, alien like one, one, Folians, I think. One time alien. <laughs> yes, it was they only made a one time appearance. <laughs> And, uh, oh, it was that, you know what? It ended up being, remember they got visual contact and it was that really scary alien? Yeah, yeah. And then when they finally went on board, it was that little kid. Oh, yeah. Which well, happened, which was, was Ron Howard's same, little brother. That was, was the same Clint episode. Howard. That was yes. the same episode. It okay. turns out that they aren't these scary aliens. It was just, they were actually faking too. I think that's the, that's mm. the same episode. Mm -hmm. And um, they, uh, at one point, he says, Please show us proof that you have this Corbomite device. And they're gonna and, and Uhura's gonna answer. He goes, No, 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 wait. Let him sweat it out a little bit. Mm. Doesn't answer right away. You know, that's very that's all poker. And then he just clicks on it and goes, Request a nine. <laughs> and he cuts off. <laughs> Hits the button. That's the same as we saying, come on, let me see your whole cards. I'm saying, no. It's poker. <laughs> yeah. Poker, that's life. Yeah. yeah. Captain Kirk. So what's next for you? I'm working on this. Uh, I just finished the season of Ray Donovan on mm -hmm. Showtime, which just started uh, airing. Um, so you were Showtime property at this point. I mean, these are your these are your gigs of latest uh, gigs. Property of, well, uh, that you know, I've done two, mm -hmm. so uh, yeah, yeah, I guess right. I'm part of the family. At this uh, point. Well, it's got good ads. So, I mean, the ads are out. So they, they do. Mm -hmm. I love cable mm -hmm. uh, series. There, mm -hmm. I think I love them because they. I like this is a crime show. And I love crime fiction and. These shows, they, they last, they're able to be so realistic and they go for so long and they get so into the character, they're like reading a book almost. You feel like you've, you've just read a good novel. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I got a new cartoon coming on Fox called Border Town. Well, you don't have enough cartoons to your credit? They came and I said, all right, sure, why not? This is Seth MacFarlane and a guy named Mark Henteman. These guys did Family Guy for a long time. As you know, time. Seth was executive producer on Cosmos. I did know that. Yeah. I did see that. And he, not many people know this because we didn't make a big deal of it, in our first episode, when we had Giordano Bruno, one of our heroes of our storytelling, Seth was the voice. Oh, really? Of Giordano Bruno. Oh, yeah. Really? Very sensitive read. I mean, it was great. And and that's the, the same person who does Peter Griffin, right? Or, yeah. Or, or 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 Stewie. So so we were we were delighted to see that range. He's amazing. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. pretty amazing. So this cartoon is what you say? It's called Border Town. Mm -hmm. And, it'll and be what on role does Seth have in it? Seth is just executive producer. He's executive producer. Mm -hmm. uh, he's really just shepherding it. And where's it going to air? On Fox. On Fox, uh-huh. Uh, it'll be on probably next spring. That's right. Simpsons is a Fox. It property. is. Yeah, yeah. As his family guy. Mm hmm And it's a pretty, pretty out there. Mm hmm Dare I say this character I play is 
the most racist character since I think Archie Bunker. Yeah, I think I can say that with confidence. Is he lovably racist? Not particularly. <laughs> okay. I mean, he's funny, mm-hmm. but I mean, like Archie Bunker, he's meant to be, or like Colbert. He's meant to be so extreme that he's a fool. That he's a caricature. Exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's supposed to point up, you know, what's awful and ridiculous about this guy. Mm-hmm. But he, it's, it's, you know, how Family Guy doesn't really pull any punches. Same well, I think it. they get away with it because they have other characters that critique it in the same show. That's exactly like... And that, so that, that's, that's how you clean your hands on that. Very much the same in this show. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, but uh, it's funny. So, yeah. Good luck with that. Thank you. Hank, thanks. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Star Talk Radio, brought to you in part by a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. And as always, I urge you, until next time, to keep looking up. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.